you open your Bibles to Revelation uh, chapter 2? We're going to study chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. But as we did last week, and as we... Oh, <laughs> I'm so excited about deacon ministry. It's time to dismiss the children for what they're excited about, and that's Sovereign Grace Church kids. So uh, the, the kids are dismissed. And this is for children eight months through second grade. I'm so thankful for people who help people who have no memory left of... Uh, to name. So not only will we be, re- be re- reading chapter 2, but as I said last week, we're, every week we're going to look at the vision that precedes this, these letters, these, these encouragements, these corrections to the church, the vision of Christ, how we need to see him again and again and again for who he is. And so that we'll be reading both of those passages today. The title you see of the sermon is Holding Fast to Gospel Mission without compromising the gospel's message. And I hope that'll become more clear to you as, as we study. Last week, we studied uh, the letter to the church at Smyrna, which was one of, the, one of two churches of the seven that does, didn't, does not receive any correction, just encouragement uh, from the Lord. Uh, they were being faithful to both the mission and the message of the gospel, even though they were experiencing Poverty that was based upon their following Christ. So whether it was governmental pressure, whether it was local business type economic pressure, they were in poverty because of following Christ. They were being slandered because of their faith. And here's what's amazing about it. They didn't just merely put up with it. I want you to just kind of think about that for a second. You know, some of us, we think we're doing well just because we're putting up with hard times. But on the inside... Man, we're grumbling and we're complaining and there's bitterness rising up and we're whining. And none of that happened for these guys. They didn't lose their passion for Christ in the midst of the suffering. And Jesus said that it was only going to get worse. Do you remember that part? So it was already hard. It was going to get worse. And it's likely that a man named Polycarp was already a young leader in the church at that time when this letter first came in to the church at Smyrna. Um, and, and he would one day be a faithful leader of the church years later. And he took to heart what was said and prepared himself to be willing to one day die for Christ. Do you remember how we, we talked about that? How can I practically prepare for the possibility of one day maybe having to give my life for Christ? It seems so out there-ish, right? Well, the way we prepare for that possible day, no telling that that day is going to come, but it's we prepare by dying to ourselves every day for Christ, right? You remember that. So this resulted in his being persecuted because of his faith and faithfulness. So I wanted you to, so this is on your notes. I wanted you to, to follow along with this as we read. Here is the record of his death and how God had prepared him for this moment. The proconsul of Smyrna uh, one of the head governmental uh, figures there, tried to persuade Polycarp to apostatize, saying, have respect for your old age and swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent, <laughs> repent, and say Caesar is Lord. Curse Christ and I'll set you free. Polycarp responded, this is so beautiful, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king and my savior now? The proconsul said, I have wild animals here and will throw you to them if you do not repent. Well, call for the animals, Parlicarp replied. It is unthinkable for me <laughs> to repent from what is good and turn to what is evil. The proconsul said, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. As they prepared the wood for the fire, they went to fix him with nails. And Polycarp said, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. As they set the wood on fire, Polycarp prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. To you with Christ through the Holy Ghost be glory both now and forever. Amen. Well, the next letter is to a church that was at that time being faithful to the mission of Christ. So there was pressure, and you're going to see there was persecution that went to the point of killing someone. But it's just this odd thing because it was also a church that was compromising the message of the gospel, both in what they taught, but also in how they lived. You know, there's, sometimes we can talk a good game, but people, you know, what's that phrase? Your life speaks so loudly. I, I can't hear what you tell me with your words. Listen, embracing false teaching led to embracing idolatry and sexual immorality. So remember as we read our passages that we want to behold Christ in all of his glory because when we behold him, we become like him. That's just, a, please don't forget that. Man, if we never see each other again, I just, please look to Jesus daily because when you behold him, you're gonna be changed. You're gonna become more like him. And the other part, the benefit of that is that the more you behold him, the more you'll see yourself clearly, the more your pride will get dealt with, the more your insecurities will be, will be you can be delivered from those insecurities, those habitual sins, because as you see him clearly, you'll see your heart more clearly, and you'll see his grace. The grace he wants to give you to change to grow and to be transformed. And as you see him more clearly, your heart more clearly, you're going to see your mission more clearly. So when we get to those really wild sections of revelation that really reveal to us the nature of the fallen world we live in, you're going to need to regularly see Jesus and need to regularly say, God, grow me in my heart so that I can be true to the mission until you come again. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So, would you join me this morning, first in Revelation 1, and let's, let's behold him, let's behold this precious vision of Jesus, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were, were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the voice, like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now would you go to chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, oh, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for such a precious day. And we want to most say thank you that you are present with us this morning by your spirit and addressing us through your word. So help us respond to you and the word you are speaking to us. Lord, it's not going to help anyone just to try to get them to respond to the opinions of some dude, some preacher, it's not going to help them to just respond to just a mere sermon. May we all respond to God addressing our hearts for his glory, for our godly good, and for the advancement of his mission until Jesus comes again. Please, Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, I grew up in a town called Los Alamos, New Mexico. Los Alamos was called the Atomic City. The Atomic City, and very easy to explain that. It's because of the nuclear research and the fact that they developed the atomic bomb in my hometown. I went to college in Las Cruces, which is called the City of the Crosses and of some really good green chili. And I just don't know why someone in Midland has not opened a new Mexican Mexican restaurant. I just, please, Lord. <laughs> City of the Cross is because when, when the town was first being organized, there was a cemetery that you would pass going into town, and it was just filled with crosses, and that's how it got its name. My first job was in New Orleans, which is called the Crescent City. And it was named that way because when, when it was, the town was first being uh, built and organized, it was really in the area where the French Quarter is, and it's, it's where the Mississippi has, makes a sharp bend, uh, forming a kind of a crescent there. Also the town that's celebrating Mardi Gras, um, that I won't get into right now. I used to live there, so it's, I have all these thoughts and memories of all that happened there. Um, we live in Midland. Which is the what? Is, are y'all visiting? <laughs> Welcome. So glad that you're here. So glad you're here. Welcome to Midland. Midland is known, hi, I'm your tour guide. Midland is known as the tall city, right? Because West Texas is so flat that you can see the tall, <laughs> not, not compared to New York tall, but West Texas, this is tall here. The, our buildings are tall, and you can see them from miles and miles around. Then you have other cities like Las Vegas, uh, known as what? Sin City. Sin that was really, you said that really fast, and <laughs> that was faster than tall city. <laughs> you know I love you, man. You know I love you. Um, you know, and I guess it gets its name for a reason, because I guess you can just go let it all hang out in Las Vegas, uh, and, and it won't even be called sin there. It won't even be called sin there, which makes it so, so crazy. And, and listen, I'm not, if you have a vacation plan, see, this is what's crazy about preaching. If you have a vacation plan in Las Vegas, I'm not saying cancel your vacation. There's a lot of wonderful things uh, about Las Vegas. Las Vegas, <laughs> and the people there, so praise God for that. Okay, so you see where I'm going after what we've, what we've read. What if you got a job offer, or you were called to plant a church in a town called Satan's City? How would you respond to that? Maybe you haven't been getting a lot of offers. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe you're just going, gulp, okay, I'm going to go live in Satan's city. Or the throne of Satan is here. Satan lives here. How about that one? How about that for a promotional brochure? Satan lives here. George, we have the George Bush home. Pergamum had Satan's home. Satan lives here. Because the deceptive and destructive work of Satan found its home base at that time in this town that would affect not only its citizens but also affect the lives of Christians that lived there. 
How would you respond? Would, you, would it be a fight response that some of us would go, yeah, I love a good fight. You know, so I'm going to, yeah, I'm going there. Or a flight response. Ooh, that doesn't, I might, maybe there's a, another place that'll give me an offer. Or maybe, how about this one? Just fit in. I'll go. I'm not going to make any waves. I'm going to go with my Jesus. But I'm just going to fit in and not make any, make any waves. Well, guys, this is not make-believe. This was a real city inhabited by real Christians, oppressed by a real devil. And this is a letter to the believers there about what they were doing well and what they needed to be on guard for. Satan was exerting his influence there. He was stirring up the government. He was stirring up false religion. He was stirring up the general population to rise up against Christians through the threat of death and even worse by promoting false teaching that would promote idolatry and sexual immorality. Main point might surprise you at first, but I think it'll make sense. The greatest danger we face in tribulation, it's not death. It's not death. It's just we get to go home sooner, isn't it? The greatest danger we face in tribulation is compromising the message of the gospel, both with our lips and with our lives. So let's look at this. There's just three easy points, and you really, they fall out so clearly in this passage. The first is a well done from the Lord. Oh, don't you love it when God just says, I'm, I'm so pleased with what you're doing with my grace. And so there's a well done. They were holding fast to gospel mission. And you see this in verses 12 and 13. Um, verse 12, Jesus is, is pointing back. He's, he's speaking to the Pergamum church and he's pointing back to the vision that he, they've already, that has already been given to John the Apostle. And it's, it's reminding them that this is the one with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. If you're, if you're visiting for the first time today, um, that vision of Jesus is not for you to go try to do a painting of that. It's, it's emblematic, it's symbolic of who he is and what he is like. That's what it's, it's, it's not what does he look like, it's what, is he, what he is like. And that's what this is all about. So this sharp two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth, meaning what he speaks is authoritative. I, you know, I say things like, like you're probably going, well, that, yeah, I, duh. But I don't know that, I don't know that in my daily Bible reading that I'm leaving there remembering what he speaks is authoritative. He he has every right to tell me what to do. He is authoritative. You can count on it. When he's promising you something, you can count on it. If he's correcting you, how foolish if we don't respond to it. He's authoritative in what he speaks. And we don't have an option. We are going to respond one way or another. We're either going to respond by checking out and kind of thinking about Man, a crazy time in sports world. In the, the Super Bowl's done. NBA, I guess it's All Star Weekend. Oh my goodness! We either will respond. I love the song we sang today that talked about our wills. We bow. Our souls we lift. Our wills we bow. 
That's every time we come to the word, that, that should be our experience. The two-edged sword means that he, he's, he's a God that will bring judgment or joy. He's a God that will bring correction or comfort, depending on how you respond to him. Christians were being killed by the sword from the state in this illustration, in this story, in, in what was happening historically in Pergamum. But they didn't have to fear because Jesus has the authoritative sword of the Lord. So even if the sword of the state is coming against us, Christ has the sword of the Lord. And he'll fight for you. And he'll give you the victory that you most need. And for others, this should be somewhat intimidating very intimidating because you may escape the sword of the state by compromising your faith. So it might seem, ah, I dodged that bullet. But now you have to stand before him who, who knows every part of your heart, every thought you've been thinking. And you have to give an account to him. And he's not shy to discipline those he loves. Judgment begins with the house of God. It both corrects and comforts, disciplines and delights. That's what's going on here. So we get to verse 13. So this Savior with total authority, complete sovereignty, and perfect love, here's what he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, but you're holding fast my name. That's great. And you didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is so good, you guys. They were faithful to Christ in the mission of the gospel among a city that wanted nothing to do with it. Man, thank you. Know, there's so many blessings about living in Midland. I mean, generally, somebody's not going to hit you in the head with a rock if you tell them about Jesus in Midland. There's a lot of churches, a lot of, there's, praise God for the gospel-centered, the numbers of gospel-centered churches and pastors that we have in this town. But in this city, you are the minority. You are the minority. This is a city that most, by and large, wanted nothing to do with Jesus and were hateful toward it. Why? Because not just they were dead in sin and their, their own flesh and animosity to God, but it was Satan's city. Pergamum was a political powerhouse. And this was politics, not like politics in the United States, which can be bonkers, right? Which is a polite way to, to call it. Um, but this was a political powerhouse that saw, this is the capital of the Roman province in that area, so it's a political powerhouse. But this is a government that there's no Christianity, there's no history of, of uh, the Bible informing and helping form and shape constitutions and stuff. Imagine living in that kind of a place. In fact, this is a place where the, the head honcho Caesar demands to be worshipped as God. Wow, that's, those are politics gone way astray. It wasn't just a political powerhouse that had even false worship associated with it. We see a little bit of that in the United States because how many people look to the government as the savior? Well, that's what kind of was going on with Caesar. It was, it was a powerhouse of false religions. All, all kinds of idol worship was here. Four significant pagan temples, one for Athena, one for Dionysus, one for Asclepius. Asclepius. Look it up. <laughs> um, and the craziest thing is I do those things where 
how do you pronounce, you know, you Google, how do you pronounce, and, and I still mess it up. And above them all, looming like this, I mean, it was a hill above Pergamum, was this temple to Zeus. And the shadow of Zeus was cast over the city. Talk about a center of false worship and idolatry. So to declare yourself a Christian and to share the gospel that declares there is only one holy and righteous God, let's just, gospel 101, only one holy and righteous God and creator that we must all give an account to, that's where we need to stand. Sometimes we want to rush to, God loves you. And, And the person goes, well, duh, of course, I'm a prize to God. No, wait a minute. No, we need to start with who God is. He's holy and righteous. He's the creator. And you have to give an account to him for your life. What's the second part? Well, which is the reason we understand that men are sinful. Men and women are sinful. We've disobeyed his commands. We put our fist up in his face. This is the gospel we're to be preaching, right? And amazing grace and love. Instead of just immediately crushing you with the sentence of eternal punishment, God sends his only begotten son. And he crushes his son and offers you forgiveness and eternal life. Unbelievable. And then what's the last part? What are you going to do with this? Grace, God will give you grace to turn away from your sin and to put your faith in Jesus. And if you've never, that may, that, just that little moment may have been a moment for someone in this, in this room. That's, that's the gospel. I didn't share it perfectly and I didn't go, and there's so much more you could say about it. But can you imagine that's what, you're, what you are believing and that's how you want to live in the city where Satan dwells. You're going to run into some problems, aren't you? If you're going to live like that. And to be honest with you, I think you're going to run into some problems even here in good old Midland, Texas. Remember, this is in your notes, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let me ask you a question. Why don't we experience more rejection? I'm not talking about ultimate martyrdom. Why don't, why don't we experience more rejection and oppression than we do? Well, if it's godliness that actually is, is, is at the root of, of hostility against the church, if godliness is what brings about persecution, what does that say about us? Can you help me here? Maybe that we're not as godly as we think. Maybe our idea of godliness, it looks good at home. It looks good when I read my Bible. But maybe people don't see much of it in my day-to-day life, in my marriage, in the way I love my wife, and the way I parent my kids, and why I say yes to what I say yes to, and no to what I say no to. And Maybe there's not enough godliness in us for them to be bothered, or for them to push us away. This, this quote has been just, God's using this quote to deal with me so much. This is from John Stott. He wrote a, a little short commentary in Revelation. Follow along with me in this. The ugly truth is that we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity or purity 
or their love. And then this phrase, the world sees in us nothing to hate. God, help us. People living in the dark of their sins don't like living around people who are living in the light of Christ. 1 Peter 4.4, you see this. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you if we're living for the Lord, right? Not every day. We shouldn't be surprised that it happens. In the midst of this, Pergamum was holding fast. And this is so cool. And yet you hold fast my name and you don't deny my faith. Even when one of your church members was killed. Can you imagine that? So Brad, I just see your face back there. Handsome as always. But let's say, precious ones, that Brad was sharing the gospel this week. And he was wanting in a loving way to introduce someone in a saving way to Jesus Christ. And this person just went, went deranged and killed Brad. How would that affect us? Because remember, this isn't fairy tale stuff. This is real history. This is stuff that really happened. We don't know how Antipas died, whether it was the act of a mob or an official execution. However it came about, he's really commended here. May all of us receive this kind of combination that he was faithful to holding on to Christ's name and his witness for Christ. Can you imagine announcements in the church the next Sunday? Please pray for Antipas' family. He died this week because of his faith in Christ. We're hearing, let's be aware, we're hearing that the government officials will be coming to your house this week. They're going to be interviewing you. They know that you, you were associated with him, and they, want to, they kind of want to see, did you aid and abet in any way with this guy? We're just asking, you know, while we're writing down your name and social security number and everything else about you. Did you believe what he believed? It's sobering, isn't it? And, you know, here's the crazy thing. That's happening this morning in third world countries, in in countries that are dominated by Islam or Hinduism. It's not make-believe. God helped the persecuted church. Can you imagine how many emotions would rise up in the hearts of those gathered there? Some angry and militant, you know, some fearful and fleeing, some faithful and missional. But once again, isn't it so wonderful to hear Jesus say, oh, listen, listen, I know this is a scary time, but I know where you live. I know where you live. I know how jumpy you are. I know, listen, this is a true story. Last night, I hear something at 3.30 in the morning. And it was, was, I thought, definitive. (laughs) And I thought, somebody's in the house, and I wear a CPAP. So I thought maybe I'd scare him just because of the way I look with my CPAP. But I go and I get a baseball bat. Thank God my son was a baseball player. We have all kinds of bats around the house. So, and so I'm, <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you this, because I'm, bar- I'm embarrassing myself as I tell it. But here I am, the hose is detached, but all the rest of the CPAP is here. You guys, I, don't, 
I, I mean, none of you ever see me at night because I will scare children. I will scare young children. I wear mouth tape to keep the air from not going, escaping out my mouth and all this. So I, anyway, anyway, so here I am. I'm freaking out. I got I just tell you, I'm turning on lights and rooms. I'm opening closets. I've got that baseball bat. All for my imagination. <laughs> oh my goodness. And because I love my wife. And if there was somebody there, I, wanted, I was going to pound them. Uh, but what if it wasn't your imagination? You're hearing noises at night and you've just heard that Antipas is dead. Killed because of what he believed. Or, or this, you've wandered into the land of what if. Oh my goodness, man, what if my kids suffer because I'm following Christ? What if my kids suffer because I, I didn't give in to the political stuff going on in my workplace and I wasn't willing to just give my soul for my job, which meant I, I might have a smaller salary. What, what's going to happen to my kids? You know what that's like. And Jesus is saying, I know where you live. The Lord knows not only where you live, but I think he'd want to remind you, it's no accident you live where you live. I know you live in Satan's town, but it's no accident. I'm in control of your life. I'm the one that has you there. I have a purpose and a reason. I have joy to give you and strength and peace so that you can live for my glory while you live there. It's so good to know that he knows where we live. And they're holding fast at this point to their witness for Christ and to Christ himself. That little note here, the Christians in Pergamum didn't allow their devotion to Christ's mission to be dictated by their circumstance and by their sorrows. And I've just too often done that. The real danger, though, facing them in this tribulation was, was not death, but compromise. Compromising the message of the gospel, both by what they taught and what they believed and how they lived. Satan knows. He just knows that if persecution doesn't get you, you know what he's going to try next? Perversion. Or maybe you could say this. That sounds cool. Ooh, perversion. Not me, Satan. Not persecution. Seduction. The world is just going to look so good to you. And you're leaning toward thinking, I'm going to find my answers in the world. I'm going to find my answers in another person. I'm going to find my answers in education. I'm going to find my answers in the dollar. Isn't it? He, he knows if I can't get you to compromise by the threat of death, maybe I can by the threat of lust of the flesh, lust of the world for the world. So the next part is not... He goes from well done to wake up. Wake up. Because they were compromising the gospel's message. And that was in verses 14 through 16. In the midst of this tribulation and persecution, there were already those among the believers in Pergamum who because of false teaching were losing their grip on the gospel doctrinally and morally. You guys, it's going to happen to you. If you're straying in your Bible reading and devotion, if you're straying from having real engagement with other believers focused on growing stronger as a Christian, 
If, the more you stray from sound Bible teaching, it's just a given. It's going to affect your heart. It's going to affect your morality. So Jesus gives them a wake-up call when he says, I have this against you. Man, how would you like to wake up tomorrow morning and that's your devotions? Well, if it is, that's a good thing. Because when Jesus says it, he's not wanting to bust you up the side of the head. He's wanting to turn you back to his heart. Because maybe you've forgotten how good his love is. Maybe you've forgotten how good his promises are. Maybe you've forgotten the blood he shed for you. So it's a good thing if the Lord talks to us like this. I have this against you. you, you, you he points them back to the teaching of Balaam. Um, and that was being really reproduced in the, teach, in, the, in the current events at that time, in the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And the bad fruit of that teaching was an increasingly immoral lifestyle. Numbers 22 through 24 is where you see Balaam and, and this, this story between him and the king of Moab named Balak. Um, you remember that uh, Balak just, the Moabites were just trying to eliminate the Israelites and they were doing everything they could. They decided, hey, maybe if we can get someone to curse, uh, maybe if, if God, so we could get someone to put a curse on the Israelites, we can, we can beat them in battle. So they go to this priest for hire named Balaam. And so he, every time he tries to curse God's people, and the only thing that would come out is God's blessings. That should comfort us. That even the most evil people in the world can't put their hands on your heart. God is always protecting you. He's always, he's always standing up for you, even when you don't even know it's going on. Well, Numbers 25, this kind of tells you about Balaam's heart. He goes to the king of Moab and he said, you know what, if, if, this, if this cursing of the people is not going to get us anywhere, get you anywhere, why don't you do this? Why don't you send your women to mingle with the men of Israel and, and have them bring the false gods and idols with them? Uh, I think they'll be able to entice them into sexual immorality and idolatry. And that's what brought God's judgment. So do you see that storyline? They couldn't get them with persecution, so let's get them with perversion. We can't get them with persecution, so let's get them with seduction. And Jesus is saying that they're following the teaching influence of the Nicolaitans is just like that. They, they were leading Christians into both spiritual and sexual unfaithfulness, if you want to put it that way. There's no mention made here in this just brief account of the actual teaching, just the practices that flowed out from the teaching. They were eating food sacrificed to idols, but they were, they were identifying themselves with the world. They were doing it in pagan temple services. There was really no difference between the person who said, I believe in Christ, and the person who said, I believe in Zeus, because they ate at the same table in the pagan festivals and sacrifices. There was no line drawn Isn't it amazing when you, when, you quit, when you quit drawing a line or you move the line, it doesn't get any better. You just get worse. There's more immorality. 
Essentially, the teaching of the Nicolaitans distorted Christianity into a religion that looked to Jesus to save them from hell, while at the same time looking to idols to save them from unhappiness. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm really concerned that that's a great deal of what's going on in the United States church. It's not Christianity, guys, for us to say, yep, I, I choose you, Lord, save me from sin, from, from the punishment my sin deserves and from the, the everlasting judgment in the lake of fire. I want salvation from that. That's my confession. But functionally, man, I want, I, I'm gonna look to these idols to bring me happiness. I don't want hell, but I do want happiness. And so here we get this double-minded Christian. You see where it, how it goes. And you know what? Come on, haven't we all been guilty of that? We've all been guilty of that. We slip, we drift, we can be guilty of those kind of things. Well, Jesus is calling the church to repent there. And if not, he says, he will come to you soon. He's going to war against them. Interesting phrasing. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to war against them. What is that about? Well, I think what he's talking about is that the them are those who are actually teaching this false doctrine and endorsing these, these immoral lifestyles. But who is the you? I'm going to say something that, that should be said all over the place, but unfortunately it's not being said anymore. I think it's those who aren't necessarily teaching that bad doctrine and they're not living those immoral lifestyles but they're, they're looking just the other way. They're not doing anything about it. They're not loving the brother enough to go reach them and get them and win them. They're tolerating it instead of confronting and restoring those who did. That's why I think Jesus is saying, listen, I've got a sharp two-edged sword and, it's, and it certainly is gonna go to war against those who are teaching this and promoting this lifestyle. But I'm actually gonna also come to you. Oh, you guys, there's so much to say in so little time. Oh. When you think of church membership, when you think of the spiritual health of the church, do you just, do you just shove all of that onto the elders? We do have a high responsibility for your spiritual health. We do. But have you ever stopped to think, maybe I too have a responsibility for the spiritual health of the local church that I am a part of. The Bible calls the, the Christian church, the local church, a body. Well, doesn't, don't, don't our, even our body parts in the human body have some responsibility about the health of the body? Is that the way you see being, have, finding, I've seen faces I haven't seen before. If you're visiting today, welcome, welcome, welcome. Please include this in your search for a home church. I ask that you would consider, am I this kind of person and am I looking for that kind of church where it's not just the elders who are responsible for the health of the church? We all are. I think that's what the text is telling us. He says repent. It means a change of mind and belief. It's a change of heart desire and it's a change of behavior. I gotta, I've got to be honest with you. I think most of our repentance nowadays is very shallow and incomplete. We repent for our behavior, but we never get it to the heart level. Not never, sorry. We don't often enough see that it wasn't just the 
behavior I committed. How many times have you said, I'm sorry, and your spouse says, you, you say you're sorry all the time, but you don't change. Likely, it's because of shallow repentance. It's not just feeling sorrow about, about the behavior you did. It's also now going back to, what was I believing? I mean, literally, what was I thinking, right? What was I thinking? That's a good question. What was I unbiblically thinking? What, what was I not believing? What was I thinking that anger could get me instead of humility before God and before others? What was wrong with me? So now you're looking at that and you're also going, what, what did I want so much that I was willing to sin to get it? That's the heart level, isn't it? And when you come to God like that, there's repentance. There's a godly sorrow to that. And that's, listen, and it's going to bring refreshing and renewal and revival for us. And it's actually supposed to be kind of a regular part of the Christian life. <laughs> because don't we sin a little too regularly, right? We do, we do. And so there's, this is all to be a part of that. Uh, listen, listen to the scripture itself describe it in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Now listen how this is described. That leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing. What concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Oh God, give us grace for real repentance. If you don't repent, he says, I'm going to war against them. We've already gone over that. So let me ask you, do you believe as a church, as Sovereign Grace Church of Midland, do you believe that we live with a reverent fear that believes something like this could happen to us? Not us. Sovereign Grace Church of Midland? Every church should have a reverent fear that we could drift from the gospel. Thank God for his sustaining grace, his preserving grace, and how he brings us back to his heart. But shouldn't we have a reverent fear that this could happen to us if we go careless with the gospel? What kinds of false teaching today could promote that kind of idolatry and sexual immorality? I'm going to go through this really fast. Prosperity gospel, you've heard us pound on that a lot. I'm also going to include a pragmatic gospel. You know, as people are visiting our church, one thing that breaks my heart is when they say, you know, I go to these churches and I hear them read from the Bible to begin with, but they never address the Bible the rest of the sermon. But they tell me three ways that I can be this or five ways that I can be that. It's called pragmatism. It's a pragmatic gospel. Three steps to a happy marriage. Oh, wait a minute. What did I just say? What's the goal? Happiness, not holiness. How about an unbiblical grace gospel? Using grace as an excuse for sins of idolatry and sexual immorality rather than the power of God to help us deny ungodliness. That's biblical grace, isn't it? And we're so glad for that. And I'm saved. How about that one? I'm saved. So it doesn't matter how I live. I'm going to be forgiven. Hmm. If that's the way you believe and are living, you may not be saved. Gospel of legalism. Listen, 
people are legalistic because, again, there's this, there's this desire to become acceptable to God by what you do, which is going to work out really good for you. It's still focused on you. And isn't it amazing? The more you focus on trying to keep the law, the more you want to break it, right? And parents, you see that all the time in our kids. Don't touch that electrical outlet. Don't touch that electrical outlet. I was just with my grandgirls this weekend for a little bit. I'm just, oh my goodness. They, they remind me so much of their papa. <laughs> it's just, I do that all the time. How about the gospel of nationalism that seeks salvation in personalities and political parties? Why? Because we need our best life now. We just need the old days to come back again. Constant pressure of worship, of wealth, the worship of sex, the worship of materialism. There's so many of these teachings that can lull us into sleep and, and believing that, that, that because they're so common, they must be okay. Please be careful of your heart with that. Just because some is, something is common doesn't make it normal. Doesn't make it biblical. Please be careful. Oh, may we regularly experience the grace of God in repentance because God will bring us into refreshing and renewal and clarify our vision of him, see a clearer vision of our hearts, see a clearer vision of our mission, and there's a reward that his grace gives us, and that's the ending part. There was the well done, there was the wake up, and there's welcome home to the one who conquers that's really one of the big reasons God's given us revelation, guys. It's, it's not to freak us out and frighten us. It's to say, follow me, and I'll make you more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. This is the triumph of the Lamb, and he's going to share that triumph for you. So he says, so the one who conquers, I'm going to give the, the hidden manna. Well, what, wait, what is that talking about? Well, just, let's just go back to our understanding of the Old Testament. Manna was bread that God miraculously sent down from heaven to feed the Israelites one day at a time, they wouldn't see tomorrow's manna today. So in that way, do you see it was hidden? God's going to give you all you need today. He's not going to give you tomorrow's grace today. There's enough trouble tomorrow, and you know what? There's going to be all kinds of wonderful grace tomorrow for you. So you don't need to worry about tomorrow. Trust him today. Follow him today. So God's going to continue. And, G and Jesus, the Bible says, is the bread of heaven. Manna was just an illustration that pointed to Jesus. He promises that he will, on a daily basis, feed you and empower you and satisfy you and strengthen you day by day. And so you don't have to fear tomorrow. You don't have to go into the what-ifs about tomorrow because Jesus is already there and he already has the grace that you need for it. You don't need to see how he'll do tomorrow to believe that he'll love you tomorrow. And then this promise would just bring even greater delight for eternity, you guys. I mean, can you imagine, for all of us who have suffered greatly in this life, and we kind of still wonder, how's the Lord going to make up for everything I've gone through? Listen, as you, as you see him face to face, as you receive this, this, the manna of Jesus himself, you, you're actually seeing him by sight the delight that we will experience will even, will, I think it'll get us to the point of saying, I really didn't lose anything. I get Jesus for eternity. 
What I had was a light and momentary affliction. And then that white stone, what about that white stone? Well, the white stone had two, two implications at the time of the writing of this. One was that it was, if you were, you were going to be inducted to a society, they would all have to put forward a white stone to accept you into it. Well, we have a way better white stone, don't we? And it's not based on our works. It's based on the work of Jesus who took our place on the cross in order to give you perfect forgiveness. You don't have to worry about your acceptability before God. You've gotten the white stone. You are accepted and forgiven in Christ if he's your savior. And then the other part of it was that you'd also, it was also an invitation for the person who had won the race. They'd run the race well and they got the white stone. And it was, it was you, you could go into the dining hall and feast like you've never feasted before. These are the promises of the Lord. And he talks about this new name. Guys, on that day, listen, as beautiful as the name of Jesus is to us now, on that day, we're going to have a more complete understanding of his name. Revelation calls him King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the triumphant Lamb. And in understanding his name, you're going to get a better appreciation of your identity in him. An identity that's loved and cherished and now promised everlasting joy with him forever. Could you stand with me? We're just going to take a few minutes to just be quiet and to ask the ministry of the Holy Spirit to make application. There's countless ways I'm sure the Lord's speaking to people. And I don't want to try to distract from how he's already working in your heart by giving a few extra suggestions right now. Just a couple questions. So where do you have a confessional belief in Jesus to escape from hell, but a functional pursuit of happiness through idols, through people or things or money? That may be a, a a question all of us would be, it'd be good for us to think through and ask. Is the Lord leading you to repentance today? And did you understand repentance as more than just a, it's not a harsh word, it's a very inviting, loving word that helps us not only deal with behavior, but also God giving us grace to change our hearts. Is there, is it, do you need to repent today? All of us need to remember that we're accepted in Jesus Christ. His blood paid it all, and all to him I owe. And he's promised that we will sit at that banquet table with him forever. And until then, we're to be faithful until he comes. So I'm just going to give us just a couple of minutes. It's not going to be forever long. If you want to stay and actually be prayed for Pray with someone. Marcus and Michelle, I think you guys are up on the prayer team this morning. Marcus and Michelle will be up here um, for anyone who wants to pray afterwards. But let's just ask the Holy Spirit to minister the word in, an, in a way that brings application to what he's wanting to do in our lives today.
Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you are so faithful to speak to us personally, day by day, through the scriptures and through our fellowship, uh, Lord, and our families and with small groups of believers. We're so thankful for the very unique way you address us when we gather on the Lord's Day. Thank you, Lord, for the word you've spoken to us today. Thank you for sweet conviction of where you want to help us grow and change. Thank you for the promise of forgiveness and how we stand righteous in Christ before you. Oh, Lord, regardless of the circumstances we face, we, we so want to be true to both the mission of the gospel and the message of the gospel that we both speak with our lips and live with our eyes, I mean, live with our lives. And so please help us with that, Lord. We love you, we praise you, we adore you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.